Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters, a bi-weekly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with and about the creators of lyrics and music that stand the test of time. I'm Scott B. Beaumont. And I'm Paul Duncan. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also keep up with us on social media by searching for one word, Songcraft Show, or visit us at songcraftshow.com. And if you believe in the Songcraft mission, please consider supporting us by visiting patreon.com slash songcraftshow. After an artist's career recording for the Columbia, Barnaby, Capitol, and Monument labels, Bob Morrison hit the number one spot on the country charts as a songwriter with Kenny Rogers' recording of You Decorated My Life. Also a top 10 Billboard pop hit, the composition earned Morrison a Grammy for Best Country Song. Additionally, he co-wrote Lookin' for Love, a number one country single and a number five pop hit, popularized by Johnny Lee from the soundtrack of the film Urban Cowboy. Other chart-topping selections from Morrison's catalog include Debbie Boone's Are You on the Road to Loving Me Again, Conway Twitty's Don't Call Him a Cowboy, and Highway 101's Whiskey If You Were a Woman. Further highlights from his songbook include Olivia Newton-John's cut of The River's Too Wide, Reba McIntyre's top 10 single, You Lift Me Up to Heaven, Kenny Rogers' top 5, Love the World Away, Conway Twitty and Loretta Lynn's I Still Believe in Waltzes, Gary Morris's The Love She Found in Me, George Jones's Shine On, and the Dixie Chicks' Tonight the Heartache's on Me. Just a few of the many other artists who've recorded Bob's songs are Ray Charles, Roy Orbison, Glenn Campbell, Jerry Lee Lewis, Sammy Davis Jr., Ray Price, John Anderson, Barbara Mandrell, Dottie West, Mel Tillis, The Kendalls, and The Carpenters. He was named ASCAP Country Songwriter of the Year in 1978, 1980, 1981, and 1982, as well as the NSAI Songwriter of the Year in 1981. In 2016, Bob was inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. Part 1. If you're interested in recording a demo of an original song or even recording an entire album, check out pearlsnapstudios.com. Our friend Justin and his team at Pearl Snap Studios are able to custom design whatever recording project you need, from a simple guitar vocal demo all the way to an entire richly produced album. They can do whatever it is that you've got in your head and you need done. So go to pearlsnapstudios.com. You can check out links including Build My Demo and Make a Record to find out all about the process and the costs. Be sure to tell them that Songcraft sent you and you'll even get a discount. So this is the point when my good friend Paul Duncan would say something witty and transition us out of that ad into whatever we're going to talk about today. Uh, Today is actually a historic day in Songcraft history in that I have never done a part one without Paul Duncan. So Paul is unfortunately unable to be here today. And uh, don't worry, he hasn't quit the show. We're still buddies. We're still Songcraft partners. Uh, unfortunately, schedules just made it so that we were not able to get together and do a part one this week. And since he is the funny one, uh, I am not going to attempt to entertain you uh, during this portion. But I am going to take a moment before we jump into this interview with Bob Morrison and do a little bit of listener mail. Uh, we like to read uh, correspondence that we get from from folks uh, from time to time. We thought we'd share a little bit of those today. And uh, I apologize that Paul was not here with his witty banter to uh, to chime in on this. But uh, first of all, here's a message we got from Sally Bentley. She says, I've been listening to Songcraft for a while now. I started from the very beginning and have slowly been working my way up to present times. Right now I'm on episode 139 in the early days of COVID. 
Your podcast is so interesting and fun to listen to. I've listened to every single one all the way through. When you started adding your banter at the beginning of the podcast a while back, I wasn't sure about it. <laughs> I wasn't sure about it, but now I totally enjoy it. Well, thank you, Sally. Uh, I finally joined Patreon to support your show. I'm not a songwriter, but a music appreciator, also a songwriter appreciator. I was one of those who studied the lyrics and the liner notes, as well as the songwriters and musicians when albums and CDs listed that information. So far, I think my favorite episodes were John Jorgensen and Marty Stewart. Yep, those were good ones. And she says, keep the interviews coming. Thank you, Sally. Thank you for uh, enjoying our banter. I'm sorry we don't have uh, banter today, um, but uh, we definitely appreciate you supporting us on patreon.com and, and helping keep the lights on here at Songcraft. Uh, next, we've got a message from Keith Larson. He says, hi, Scott and Paul. I have enjoyed listening to your interviews, and I have to say, at times, I enjoy part one every bit as much as the interviews. You have a fun, easy chemistry that only longtime friends can have. Thanks for the time and effort you put into the podcasts. Probably shouldn't be reading all these about how great part one and our chemistry is on this uh, one day that Paul actually is not here. Um, next is from Brent Calloway. He says, thank you so much for your podcast. It has changed my life for the better. Glad he added that for the better part. I had not written a decent song in 20 years and then started writing again after watching the Beatles documentary, Get Back. Soon after, I found your podcast and have been quickly devouring the back catalog. I've written two songs that were inspired directly from your podcast, one of them from your part one banter. So, hey, another vote of confidence for the uh, for the part one banter there. So we're even inspiring songs now. Uh, that's pretty cool. Thanks, Brent. Um, next up is a message from Kathy. The subject is Janice Ian interview. That was an episode we aired a while back. Kathy says, you guys are fantastic. She is fantastic. I love hearing her talk about her music. Her mic so sucked. Please do mic slash sound check and correct prior to interviews. Uh, thank you, Kathy. Unfortunately, we cannot correct uh, guests who have sucky mics. Uh, we have no control over that. We cannot mail them the mic of our choice in advance. So unfortunately, it is what it is. Uh, for a Hall of Fame of particularly bad audio, I would direct you to our uh, interview with Billy F. Gibbons of ZZ Top. That one was uh, poor quality. And in fact, you know, stick around today for Bob Morrison because this was a phone interview and, and not a great connection. The sound's not great on that one either. So uh, that'll probably bum you out as well. But uh, anyway, thank you for the feedback. Unfortunately, we control everything we can about audio quality, but we can only do so much when it's a remote interview. So, uh, but we're glad you like the show. Glad you like Janice and we like her a lot too. She's great. Uh, for Christmas, maybe we'll get her a decent mic. Um, next up is a message from Andy Zipf. He says, gentlemen, I've been listening to the podcast for a couple years now. I discovered it right before COVID in the before times. I usually listen while running, which is a great way to experience the conversations. I'm a songwriter, been at it for a few years, and I appreciate your name, song plus craft. That's how I think of it, a craft. I just wanted to say thanks for what you do and thanks for the inspiration. Oh, well, thank you, Andy. Uh, and actually we have a message from another Andy, Andy Bunn. Hello, fellows. This is just a quick note of thanks. I started writing songs in large part because of your podcast. I picked around for years and never thought I could write a song, although I wanted to more than anything else. During the pandemic, I was faced with isolation and my mom's deterioration with Alzheimer's disease. The only thing she liked to talk about was her upbringing in North Carolina in the 40s. And because I'm a middle-aged man, some genes switched on where I got interested in genealogy. I began researching her family in order to enjoy and appreciate her stories. I worked up the courage to start writing songs and approached it like any skill, writing, editing, revising. It wouldn't have happened without your show. 
That's very cool. Uh, and he says, a few weeks ago, I released my first album, which are all story songs based on old family stories. And he, he provides a link, which I'm going to share with everyone else, because I think you should check out what uh, our listeners are doing. Uh, it's andybun.bandcamp.com slash releases. Uh, Andy Bun with two N's. A-N-D-Y-B-U-N-N. Andybun.bandcamp.com dot com slash releases and he goes on he says i wanted to share this with you and thank you for the impact you've had on my life uh you have been with me every step of the way and i owe you a great debt the world has too little kindness in it and too little gratitude i have no expectation that you'll read this or listen to the record i do want you to know how important your show has been in my life with respect and thanks well andy uh respect and thanks to you for uh reaching out to us we did in fact read it and now we're even telling everyone else to listen to your record so everybody go listen to andy cheer him on uh next up message from jim smothers he says hi guys i've really enjoyed your interviews and i'm constantly amazed at how well prepared you are for them thank you jim that means a lot we pride ourselves on doing some research and trying not to ask idiotic questions although we do from time to time uh next up is a message from troy olison he says wow we moved to a small town north of seattle in december of 2021 creating a one hour each way commute for myself in January, I decided to find podcasts to listen to. I found Songcraft. I started listening to the show, not realizing that I had just embarked on an epic musical voyage. Not knowing anything about the show, I absorbed every episode from the beginning, sometimes two a day, five days a week. Man, have I learned a lot. Anyway, I just caught up to real time. I, have, I am out of episodes. Listening to the episodes through the pandemic was bizarre because I knew how the movie went. Keep up the good work, and thank you. And then he adds, also, Billy Joel, please. Maybe Richard Page from Mr. Mister. Both excellent ideas. I like that. I don't know if Billy Joel will come on the show, but uh, Billy, if you're listening, uh, we'd love to, to have you come on. And I met Richard Page once from Mr. Mister, uh, so I think I could actually track him down. So good su suggestion there from Troy. We'll work on that. Um, Bill Hunter says, hey guys, I just recently found your Songcraft podcast and I'm getting caught up as quickly as I can. Such great episodes with valuable content and great guests. I've been a songwriter since the 80s and have had mild success with multiple music licensing deals, but no real commercial success to speak of. But hopefully with the inspiration and material you're providing, that will motivate and catapult me into that category. A new fan indeed. Thanks again, guys. So, very cool. Uh, we love getting messages from listeners and sometimes we're really on top of responding right away and, and sometimes we're not in fact some of the ones I've just read today we haven't even gotten around to responding to yet but uh, I am now responding to you uh, in the podcast we really appreciate when you guys reach out uh, and let us know what you think of the show and especially when we hear about it inspiring people to write songs of their own uh, I'm just going to wrap up this section with one last uh, piece of listener mail. This actually came from December of 2020. So this is an old piece of listener mail from Todd Elge, who is a friend of the show. And Todd writes, Paul and Scott, I am continually surprised and excited about the songwriters and artists you all are getting. Any plans for Bob looking for love, Morrison? So thanks to Todd Elge, uh, we decided, you know what? We should talk to Bob Morrison. So thank you, Todd, for the suggestion. And, uh, Thank you to anyone else who wants to send suggestions our way. So this episode is dedicated to our friend Todd Elgie. Uh, we did, in fact, speak with Bob Morrison, and we're bringing you that interview today. And you know what? Since since Paul's not here, we're not going to be all formal and do a recap of the, the little bio part right before we get in the interview. We're not going to play the musical bump. We're just going to say... 
Hey guys, here's the interview with Bob Morrison. Part two. Bob, welcome to Songcraft. It's nice to be welcomed anywhere these days. <laughs> right, right. It's good to uh, good to have you on the show. Um, I understand that you grew up in Mississippi with a father who was a jukebox operator. Um, talk a bit about what kind of impact your dad's job had on just your you know, exposure to and appreciation of music when you were growing up and, and, and what some of the things were that really kind of caught your ear and became some of your favorites? Well, my dad was, I, he gave me an education and it was inadvertent. He would go every two weeks with a hundred jukeboxes. He had all kinds of locations like, you know, uh, R&B locations and, uh, you know, honky-tonks, uh, hotels, restaurants. He had to buy all kinds of different records for that kind of thing. So he would come home with like, well, I don't know, maybe 15 or 20 different things, like everything from Jimmy Reed and funky stuff to Frank Sinatra and, you know, all kinds of stuff. So I, I conned him and just said, Dad, would you bring me a set of each one? And so I started listening at eight or nine years old, started listening to the radio. I always found music beautiful, you know, something about it touched me in, in, in that gut range, somewhere between the heart and whatever else there is in the gut. And I'd get chills when I heard something that was was destined to be a hit. I mean, I don't know why that happened. It sounds like huh. baloney, but it's true. There was something that happened in my gut. Anyway, and I got all I got an eclectic education uh, of all kinds of musical styles. And some of it must have sunk in. Yeah, and I have to thank him for, you know, up there somewhere, wherever he is, you know, because that was the beginning of it all. Hmm. And I used to listen to WLAC, and I heard all these R and B records, and and they weren't playing them on white radio, of course. But right. a lot of them touched me and stuff. And I got it just a, I liked all of it. I mean, there was good in all of it, but not all of it was good. Huh. Interesting. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. Well, you know, uh, there is a bit of like gap to fill in because there's sort of that one thing leads to another thing. In 1965, you began recording for Columbia Records, uh, including an early version of the love, love theme from Sandpiper, The Shadow of Your Smile. That song went on to be a hit for Tony Bennett and win the Grammy Award for Song of the Year. But how did you end up, you know, coming from a kid growing up listening to and loving music to becoming a recording artist for Columbia? Well, it was kind of a strange I first went to Washington and finished up my education at Howard University I went to Mississippi State and got an engineering degree but I had to have nine hours and I met some people and they said you need to you need to meet George Avakian who was like involved with Johnny Mathis's career and at that time I was kind of a singer in that genre I mean I was the white guy who could sing a bit like Johnny Mathis certainly not as good but Anyway, I met John Hammond, who was the head of the NAACP, a white man, who had discovered Dylan. And he signed me because, I think, because I went to Howard University. <laughs> so I think that's probably the reason he signed me, but that's okay. Uh, I don't know why I got love theme from Sandpiper. I knew that uh, Tony Bennett was waiting in the wings, and, and they released my record uh, backwards. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so he was going to do the song. And it was a good record. I was I was probably a lot nervous, and you know I'd finally got a fairly good thing. But I thought I thought I wanted to be an artist, 
and I wasn't writing songs. I mean, I was writing songs, but I wasn't. They weren't songs for me. But I discovered I was kind of an introvert, and to go and schmooze and do the stuff you have to do, and I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Uh, It just wasn't me, and uh, it's not that I don't like people. I just like them sparsely. You know what I mean? I, hope, I in other words, I, one at one at a time is okay, but when I have to do it a bunch, I get exhausted, like intro, like any good introvert will. <laughs> Some people uh, get energy from people. I didn't get it. I it, I lost it. So I said, you know what? This is not my way. Yeah. And so I said, maybe I can just. I was more of an engineer type, you know, sit down and work out the problem kind of guy, rather mm. than high folks. Here I am. Yeah. Um, so that's what I did, and I said, I don't know if I could make a living at it, but, you know, uh, I just can't do this, I don't think. And it, who knows whether that stuff's ever going to work, you know. Being a great, being a, an artist, you have to be good or lucky or both, or you know. And I'd rather be try to be good or lucky on a, with an empty sheet of paper than try to be in front of the public. So that's where, that's why I, I tried to do it, you know, but it, it was not, my heart wasn't in it, really. Yeah. How did you how did you meet John Hammond? John Hammond was through George Avakian, who was my uh, who was my manager at that time. George had been, like I said, in, uh, you know he was a great jazz producer. He was at Columbia, and John was still at um, at Columbia. He had discovered Bessie Smith and and Bob Dylan, and and for years they called Bob Dylan uh, Hammond's folly. Uh, and that's true. I mean, he was just, they said, boy, what, what is he doing? I heard his first album. It's so different from Columbia. That's how I met John Hammond. He's a very nice man. Had a crew cut, you know, very sweet guy and uh, a good man. So, I mean, I, I really believe I was, I got the the uh, deal because I had gone to Howard as a Mississippian. Yeah. And, you know, that, that I really do believe that rather than the, the awesome talent that I was just playing. Well, your second Columbia single was Hey Puppet Man, which was a, a semi-psychedelic garage rocker co-produced by one of our past Songcraft guests, Chip Taylor. Unlike your first Columbia single, that's that was a song that you actually wrote. Um, tell us a bit about how you got into writing songs of your own and what you remember about your very earliest writing efforts. Well, I started in college, uh, and I wrote basically Motown stuff like uh, Mary Wells, like, I have no pity on you, uh, that kind of stuff, you know. Um, and I really wasn't trying to to be a folky, because that was a folky time, and I continued to write. Unfortunately, when I got to Columbia, I figured my career, I mean, rock was just beginning to get raw and stuff like that, you know, I mean, it already started, but I figured, listen, I'm probably not going to make it as a ballad singer, I think I'll do something else. And so I started with this protest Dylan copy stuff, and 
that's where that started. And um, that was semi-unsuccessful, or mostly unsuccessful. But, uh, it, I, again, I like the writing better than I like the, you know, the performing of it. But you try to throw a hit out there, and then all of a sudden you may be able to deal with, with it. You know, I don't know. I, they say for every guy who can uh, deal with failure, for every hundred that can deal with failure, only one can deal with success, which we've mm-hmm. seen play out. But I thought I could deal with success if I had to do it. And uh, that's why I started, and I kept writing. Well, by the start of 1970, you were living on the West Coast, and you, you were recording on the, the Barnaby label. But then you released an LP for Capitol Records called Friends of Mine, featuring the lead track and single release, Tell the Riverboat Captain. And there are some amazing players on that record. You got Hal Blaine, Ronnie Tutt, Carol Kay. Tell us a bit about the experience of writing and recording that project. It was kind of weird. Uh, I just decided to go get off the grid and write what I felt like writing. Uh, most of it came out of not experiences, but just thinking, you know, there was the, the um, Creedence Clearwater right then and stuff like that. You, know, uh, you dig all the influences that are around you and just try to pull a song out of, out of the way they groove it and stuff like that, not necessarily a copy. And actually there was one on here which I think might be interesting for people. I wanted to write... I was going to write the biggest, lousiest, rottenest lyrical chorus. I mean, <laughs> just a cliche, a rotten cliche. And I had an idea. I said, okay, I'm going to try to write the worst chorus in the history of songwriting. It's going to be something that's already been a hit and probably been written 5,000 times. So I wrote that chorus, and then I wrote all the melody. I said, it's got to be a sing-along because you can't get away with something that people can't sing along. But then I turned around and wanted to write the lyrics kind of convoluted and kind of back, you know, unusual, not straightforward, straight into the chords. Right. And the song I'm talking about is You're the One in a Million. Hmm. Because the, the lyrics in the verse are not normal, and the lyrics in the chorus is just blah. <laughs> but the whole thing kind of worked. Yeah, you know, the rest of the songs just came out of the times. You know, it's like the the times of the folk. You know, I I actually met a lot of people you know, out there, but I don't want to name drop or anything like that. And, and every one of them gave me some influences. So you know, yeah, you're just yeah. basically when you're really creative, you can just find stuff in the universe. I think I don't know. I don't know where it comes from. People say, "How can you do that?" I said, "I have no idea. Don't ask me." Right. <laughs> yeah, I was actually talking with Paul McCartney yesterday about how annoying name dropping is, so I appreciate you <laughs> not doing that. <laughs> well, bully for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you mentioned You're the One, uh, a song that you wrote solo. That was covered by Glenn Campbell in 1973, became a... Well, you know your stuff, man. That's, <laughs> that's a really, what is that called, like a... I don't know, something that nobody knows except a few people. <laughs> That's a deep cut. Yeah. You're, yeah. you're the one. Actually, uh, it, it was interesting. There was a disc jockey out there at that time. I can't remember his name offhand, but he just pushed on Glenn Campbell to release the record, and Glenn didn't. And that was on his Jesus Christ Superstar album, I think it was. Hmm. And I got 10 recordings on that song, Yeah, actually. Well, and I believe uh, 
Jerry Inman recorded it the following year and, and hit the charts with it. That's it was true. it was a low yeah. charter. Was that your first charting single as a as a songwriter? Uh, let me think. Boy, that's a hard question. Um you know, I don't I, I didn't write it down in a diary or anything, but my feeble little key brain says that's gotta be pretty early. So Glenn Campbell covers it. Uh, Jerry Inman hits the charts with it. Several years later, the Oak Ridge Boys, of course, had a, a, a huge hit with it. But somewhere in there, you moved to Nashville and, and immersed yourself in, in that city's songwriting community. Um, and of course, we all know the, uh, the great Tom T. Hall song, That's How I Got to Memphis. But we want to know how you got to Nashville. Oh, wow. That is... I have to tell you this story. I was on Monument Records at one point. The reason being is that Bill Justice, I was introduced to Bill Justice, who has the, as you well know, one of the top ten instrumentals, rock and roll, of Rocky. And Bill and I, I was introduced by the uh, West Coast representative out there, Bob Weiss, Bobby Weiss. And we hit it off. Bill and I just, you know, Bill was like Buddha. You know, he very slow talking, but a you could tell it was really smart. And the reason he was out there is because he wanted to score movies. Hmm. Well, he was doing about as well as I was doing. Not at all. <laughs> right. He had been in Nashville. You know, he was a great arranger. He knew all, he had all the chops musically, physically. I mean, uh, you know, intellectually, he could just write a score out in a minute. So we did a couple sides, and it, not, not much happened. But then he said, Bob, you know what? Let's go back to Nashville. He said, I want to introduce you to Bob Beckham. And I didn't know who Bob Beckham was. Uh, and and he said, you know, I think I can get you a deal there. Well, on Bill Justice's recommendation to Bob Beckham, he signed me without ever hearing the song. Uh, that's how much Bill was respected. Yeah. And, and, I, I, and it's interesting because I, I thought I was actually on my way then I ran into a little fellow by the name of Johnny McRae. And Johnny McRae, basically, in a sweet way, though, Scott, in a sweet way, said, turn down maybe a hundred different song ideas and song, you know, that I brought from California, song fragments, you know, you write the song from a fragment. And I was pretty, pretty, but he'd always tell me why. He didn't just arbitrarily turn it down, blah, blah, blah. And, so I was about four months in. I I said, man, I made a mistake, you know. I, I and I wasn't mad at Johnny. I thought he was doing it right, and I see and I saw every reason why he turned him down. Hmm. But when you begin to see where you made the mistake, yeah, it's like a hole you can step into. When you when you learn where all the holes are, you don't step into them unless it's one that's been hidden from you. Hmm. So I came in one day, and John. I said, John, I got a half a song. Uh, I, I, I don't think it's there, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, he said, John, he said, Bob, play the song. I said, John, Bob, I hemmed and hawed. He said, play the 
Blackeny Black song. <laughs> and so I, uh, I played the first half of The River's Too Wide. Hmm. And John said, looked at me straight ahead and said, it's a hit, go finish it. Huh. So wow. it hit me like a ton of bricks. I said, by George, I think I've got this. It hmm. took me about 12 seconds to write the second verse because I was so excited. Right. Anyway, within two <laughs> weeks, it was on the street as with a record. Yeah. Uh, my gosh, I can't remember. He was an Indian guy. Anyway, when I Jim say Indian, not, he's, yeah, Jim Mundy, right. Yeah. And thanks, thank you, my man. You're, you're my <laughs> new uh, memory for me. Uh, anyway, and then John Farrar called from Australia, from what I understand, and said, you know, we love The River's Too Wide, uh, and uh, we're going to release it uh, if uh, the, the Monday record doesn't go uh, below 20. Well, uh, it went to number nine, but hmm. it was still on that lovely lady from Australia's first album, which was a big seller. The river's too wide now for crossing. The water's rushed too loud for talking. We never build bridges for walking. There's no getting to the other side. The river's too wide now for crossing. The curtain goes too deep for mending. It looks like an unhappy ending. Cause the river's too wide. Good lessons learned. That sort of kicked things off. Yeah. And yeah. the rest, is, you know, I figured out a couple of things. I'd better to take on lyrics because I'm a good, I'm a, let's put it this way, I'm a fast melodist. Hmm. You know, hmm. anyway. Uh, so that, that sort of kicked it off, and I began to see what you need for a Nashville song, which is different from anywhere else. What would you say is the is the difference between a, a Nashville song and and something and something for somewhere else? It's simple. The lyric has to go from A to Z, and it has to do it freshly. And you can't get away with crappy lines. Mm-hmm. You know, in other words, it's got to be pretty well polished. In other, in, like in L.A., a lot about the groove. And you can get away with elliptical lines where people say, well, yeah, you, you, when you're smoking a joint, from what I understand, everything makes sense. <laughs> so uh, I'm not sure that's true, but <laughs> but anyway, in other words, you, you don't have to lock it up tight. Now, there are a lot of great songs written in California. I'm not, gonna, I'm not dissing them, but I'm saying you can get away with it a little bit more because the recording technique and the, and the artistry and, and actually the star power of people can, you know, like, like the Beatles wrote very well some were elliptical, but uh, I think Nashville was a constructing type, which I had mm. to learn. I, I didn't know that, so I think that's what that's what the difference is. Yeah, yeah. Well, you obviously were cracking that code. Uh, in 1976, you scored your first Billboard Top 10 country hit with Angels, Roses, and Rain. That was recorded by Dickie Lee, who was a guest on our show a few years back. Um, that's a song that you wrote with Bill and Jim Zerfus, which marks a bit of a shift. You know, the songs that we've talked about thus far were written by you solo, but as we all know, Nashville is very much a co-writing town. Tell us a bit about how you first got into co-writing and if there was kind of a learning curve for you in terms of working alone versus collaborating. Well, you know what? There's a lot of reasons to collaborate. And lyrics were always difficult for me. 
Yes, I could write them, but it took me 20 times as long to write a lyric as it did to write a quick, good melody. Hmm. And good is like, you know, who, who knows what good is, but, you know, singable, maybe a few wrinkles in it. So that's why I think this is what really made my particular success take off. I started looking at lyrics from a, that were not melodized from all the great songwriters that were hanging around combine music at that time. I didn't care too much about the money, but I knew, I knew one thing. If you're going to go to Vegas and you're going to play, you better have a lot of quarters. <laughs> and you have to have a lot of songs that are really good because some of them are going to be all close to great ain't going to get cut. That's just yeah. the way it is. Because there's too many songs and too few places to put them, and sometimes the artist or sometimes the timing is wrong. So you have to write a bunch of songs. So that's when I started taking in lyrics. And I could look at a lyric and see the flaws because it's not mine. It's not like, you know, it's almost like you're separated from it, so it's easier to see the flaws. In it. When you start writing, you're inside it. You can't see it so, so quickly. Huh. And that's what, that's what I think made the whole thing take off because I was writing 40, 50 songs a year, whereas before I was writing 15, 20. And a lot of them turned out better than hoped, and some of them didn't turn out as well, but still, I'm talking about quarters in Las Vegas. So that's, <laughs> that's, about, that's about all I can say about that. Yeah. Well, after a, a top 20 hit with Barbara Mandrell called Midnight Angel, uh, you had a couple hits with Charlie McLean, including the top 10 single, That's What You Do To Me. Um, you mentioned Johnny McRae a moment ago, and, and that's a song that you and Johnny wrote together. And, you know, you talk about... Uh, Bob Beckham and his his company, Combine Music and, and Johnny McRae. These are all names and, and people from my childhood and, and people who uh, have listened to our show a lot know that, you know, my dad uh, worked at at uh, at Combine. And, and so I remember all of these great characters from the perspective of, you know, a seven year old. And I remember Johnny McRae, who everybody called Pooch. Uh, as being a, a real character. Um, but y you mentioned the way that he was so patient with you and kind of listened to your songs. And, and now we're talking about you and him collaborating and, and co-writing together. Um, talk a bit about Johnny and, and what kind of influence he had on your development as a songwriter once you guys really started collaborating. It's good. After my dad, Johnny McRae, and here's the reason. He was a great songwriter. Hmm. A lot of, well, you know, sometimes when things don't happen, you go to song plugging, and you and you look at as a song plugger. But he he knew how to fix the songs I brought in, and he was fixing them. And I went and asked Mr. Beckham. I said, Bob, you need to let. I was starting to get a little clout. Okay, I mean, you know, starting to make some money. And I went into Bob and I said, Bob, he's helping me too much. He's he should get credit on the song. He said, well, son, that's a conflict of interest. I said, he's the only man that I know that can wear the two hats. Hmm. Right. In other words, if he's a song plugger and he's writing the song, then a lot of people will try to push their songs in a writer's meeting. He never did that. And I knew that. I have to say he was a great man. Yeah. Uh, he not only was extremely talented, and once he started writing... It was really, there was nothing holding him back. He, with Steve Clark, he wrote the Pine Box. Damn it. 
I didn't, I didn't <laughs> have any ideas. So, and also, uh, he wrote, uh, I Love to Lay You Down. And it was right. interesting. One day he came and said, Bob, he said, I, I got this lousy little melody. And, and uh, you know, uh, I, I, I just don't know. You want to try to melodize it? And I listened to it. I said, John, it sounds like what it needs to be. I said, I can change a few notes here and there, but why don't you demo it this way and see what happens? Well, Conway Twitty cut it almost immediately. So yeah. the point was, is I don't want to be involved in something just to, you know, like ride around in a, in, in a merry-go-round and stop be pushing, if you know what I mean. Right, right. And uh, it just happened to work out there. He did a great thing for me, and I was able to kind of return it to him. You know, he, he, he taught me how to write a song, yeah. and I was able to, to get him to be able to write his own songs because he would have been stuck in that situation. And he was a great prankster. He was a wonderful prankster, and I think that hurt him. Huh. I think everybody says, ah, he's just a prankster. No, 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 no. You can be a prankster and great. Yeah. And he was. It seems like in, in to, to, to make the songwriting community work, uh, it takes not only a collection of talents, but a certain kind of integrity across the board. I mean, you're talking about people that can wear those two hats of plugger and writer, but a lot of it is because, you know, he wasn't going to pitch his songs in inappropriate situations. And also for you to recognize, hey, th- these are areas in which he's having input. If he brings you a great song and you sometimes say, hey, I don't think I have anything to offer that. These are areas where integrity has to kind of, you know, t- take a role yeah. in the conversation. Well, he had it. And, 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 and as a side note, you know who pitched the song to the Oak Ridge Boys? Hmm. Johnny McRae. <laughs> and it was not a combine song. Yeah. Huh. Oh, Interesting. Well, in the late 70s, the the hits kept coming for you. I mean, with artists like Conway Twitty, Janie Fricky, and Mel McDaniel. But you returned to recording as an artist for Monument Records with the album Home Again. What drew you back to the studio in the midst of that successful run you were having, you know, writing for other artists? Uh, it was just for the hell of it. it you know, I just sort of put out songs in, in the album that might not, might have been ignored otherwise, you know. It was more or less like, here's a songwriter. You know, I had the, the you know, the, the recognition as a writer, and sometimes you can, uh, you know, sometimes you can play off that and sell a few records. You decide, you, meaning the artist, decides how much you want to do outside a successful record. You know, you can do a lot of touring, uh, because that's what you, what you want to do, or you can do, do less, and, you know... Um, I didn't want to go on the road. I had two daughters and stuff like that. It was just sort of a lock, and the opportunity was there, so that's what we did. But you know, what you do is kind of throw something up against the wall, just like a song, and see what happens, and decide what you want to do after the fact. And that's what I did. It didn't happen, which was good. I I was happy for all the failures I had, Hmm. because that led me to where I was. You talk about the failures. We still have so many successes to go through. And and one of the singles that you released as an artist for Monument was You Decorated My Life. And I, I imagine at the time you released it as an artist, you, you maybe didn't imagine the success that was coming. But that one was, of course, covered by Kenny Rogers, who made it your first number one country hit, your first top ten pop hit, and it also earned you a Grammy for Best Country Song. Are a part. 
Tell us uh, about writing that one and how Kenny got his hands on it. One of my wonderful co-writers, Debbie Hutt, she's a little gal from Kentucky, and her story is just amazing. But briefly, she came to Nashville. Johnny McRae knew her earlier. She had five kids, and she did not have a husband at that particular time. She had gotten a divorce. She had to try to find a way to make a living with five kids and write songs. Well... We wrote Are You On The Road To Love Me Again, which was Debbie Boone's first uh, number one. And she brought in the beginnings, and she had a little bit of melody, uh, I think, in the, in the verses to You Decorated My Life. She had the first verse and like a couple of lines in the chorus of my memory serves. And she handed it to me, and I said, you know what? I don't think we'll ever get this cut. This is a really pop song, but hey. Why not? We wrote everything. Every writer I've ever written with, I never said, oh, this ain't going to work in Nashville. I just said, let's write it. Let's see what happens. And this was one of those. And uh, I put it on my record and blah, blah, blah. And I remember how it got recorded. And, and, you know, for all the listeners, nothing is ever a straight line in a hit song. Nothing. I mean, if if you're Paul McCartney, yeah. You go and you cut it. See what happens. (laughs) But if you're an independent songwriter, this was pitched to Larry Butler for Kenny, and Kenny and, and, and Larry said, "I don't know, Bob. You know, ba 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 ba." And he said, "I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll put it on the bottom of the stack when I play it for Kenny, and when I'm playing songs for Kenny." Well, he went through all the songs, and he was down to the bottom of the stack, and so he played "You Decorated My Life," and he and Kenny said, "That's the one." So luck. I don't know. <laughs> Save the best for last. Well, that's, no that's, really, that's interesting because, I, I mean, I was thinking, you know, as we were sort of looking through these songs and, and I was thinking this morning about, you know, it's the prevailing theory in country music, at least now, is that, well, there are certain things that a male artist wouldn't say or, you know, these sort of, you know, tender expressions or something, you you know, a male artist probably wouldn't do that. And then you look at, at this this song and it's it's a very heartfelt, you know, uh, image-rich, kind of tender song, and is that w- was this kind of the introduction of of that in Kenny Rogers' image, or or was it something that that you knew he as an artist, you know, well, if anybody would do it, maybe Kenny would do it, um, uh, you know, wh- where did this fall into into place for? Is is that part of the reason that they were a little reluctant, you know, at first to do it? I don't know. I think the word decorated. I, we had some pushback. Debbie and I had some pushback, and and I blame her, of course. Uh, but the word decorated. Yeah. And, you know, it, it is a little silly and stuff. But you know what? Kenny could sing anything. And the main reason he could. Was he a great singer? No, he was not. But he could sell the song. And mm. no matter what it was, people were taking seriously. Mm. And so I think it was an amalgamation of an artist like Kenny Rogers. You never would have gotten it cut in, in Nashville if it hadn't been for Kenny Rogers. Mm. Yeah. And look what he's done. He he was all across the board. He could do a, a song like The Gambler and Lucille and then go and do something like Islands of the Stream. He just was very canny with regards to knowing what is commercial for him. Mm. That's yeah. why he lasted so long. Yeah, yeah. Well, on the heels of the success of You Decorated My Life, Paramount Pictures released Urban Cowboy, the 1980 John Travolta film that ignited a complete country music craze. Um, and not only did you co-write Kenny Rogers' 
top five country and top 20 pop hit Love the World Away that appeared on that soundtrack, but you also co-wrote perhaps the most enduring song from the film, Looking for Love, which Johnny Lee took to the top of the country chart and the top five on the pop chart. And telling those sweet lies and losing again I was looking for how you got involved in that multi-platinum selling iconic soundtrack that just completely fuel injected country music's popularity in that era boy that was that's that's a real story because you know bob beckham i loved him to death he was a great businessman he's a great publisher he was a little bit uh shall we say skeptical of hollywood so <laughs> he didn't he didn't really get songs that i know of <clears throat> excuse me in Hollywood, but I had lived in L.A. for six years, and one of the great things, I'm, I met a few great people, and also met a, a kind of a small agent, uh, Newell Bragg, who, who called me in Nashville after I'd moved and said, he said, Bob, there's, uh, they're putting together a country western musical. Do you have anything? I said, yeah. So I sent him a cassette back then. Cassette, you remember those? Dinosaur <laughs> cassettes? <laughs> anyway, uh, Looking for Love was one of the songs. And uh, Newell called me back and said, hey, I went to Paramount Pictures and I dropped it into a big bushel basket that was almost full with cassettes. And I said, whoop-de-doo on that one. It's like a cattle call. Right. Anyway, uh, I, I just promptly forgot about that. And uh, I think somebody, uh, a, a small producer, decided to cut it on, on his a girl's act. And he played it for me over the air in about Oh, two or three days after that, Becky Shargo, who was the music uh, coordinator for uh, Urban Cowboy, called me and said, Bob, uh, we're thinking of making this song the centerpiece of the movie. Hmm. Is there anything I need to know? I said, uh-oh. <laughs> so I called the producer and I said, I'll be glad to pay for your session, but you know, uh, I'll be glad to, he said, ah, forget it. He said, go for it. It sounds like a great opportunity. Hmm. That's a rare thing. Yeah. Hmm. So anyway, I called Becky Shargo back and I said, green light it. And that's what happened. Wow. That's amazing. And I understand that, that looking for love, uh, came together in a way that wasn't actually the conventional story of writers getting together in a room. Tell us about how the, the song actually uh, originally came together. Well, two school teachers in, in Mississippi, Gulfport, Biloxi, I think, sent me a, a, a cassette of a, of, of a rough demo, and I thought it was really, really good. The only problem with it, I thought, was it had a major seventh in the very first line of the song, which a major seventh is a chord, you know, is not used in country music, and people, music, musicians will know what I mean. It's usually major chords, it's not major seventh. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I said, that's the only downside. And I, and I, I changed a couple of uh, melodies in, in, the, in the chorus and also cut. There was a bridge that was overlong and there was some words that I didn't like. So I sort of did a doctor's job on it. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason why it was, you know, actually, I should probably know this, it was turned down by 21 acts wow. in Nashville. Turned down, and it was funny because you know uh, the the plugger, you know, people came back to him after the fact and said, "Why didn't you show me Living for Love?" He said, "I did." He <laughs> <laughs> went back in his book and said, "I showed it to you on it." <laughs> so I think the major seventh scared people off. And hmm. but again, we're talking about total luck here. Yeah, wow. total luck. Now, granted, the song I, I love the song. I said this has a chance somewhere. And it found the right wear. <laughs> yeah. It found the right wear. <laughs> the right and, wear. Uh, you know, again, I'm, I, I'm getting chills on the top of my head knowing how lucky I was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not kidding. Yeah. Well, in 1980, be- between the successes of You Decorated My Life and Looking for Love, I mean, your career was absolutely on fire. There was the top five hit, You'd Make an Angel Want to Cheat by the Kindles. There was Debbie Boone's number com- uh, number one country single, Are You on the Road to Loving Me Again? And then the Reba McIntyre top ten, You Lift Me Up to Heaven. When you're on that kind of roll, tell us what it looks like from the top of a wave. You know, Is it easy to enjoy that success, or is there kind of a, a certain amount of pressure to, to keep the pace up? You know what? I'm, maybe I'm a weirdo, but I never felt any pressure. I, I, you know, the point is, is what you try to do is one thing at a time. Hmm. I look at every song as something that could be potentially good if you do the right things for it. So you don't. I don't really think about. You know, in other words, if I could do this, then that would happen. Because it's so such life is such. I don't want to sound philosophical, but you really can't plan a hell of a lot in life. I mean, things happen to you if you use your brain and you get with the right people, and that last state with the right people Hmm. is the key to every success. If you're with the wrong people, it probably ain't going to happen. A lot of people say they're the right people, but they ain't, if I may be colloquial. (laughs) I was with the right organization at the right time, and when you get hot, you can't make any mistakes, but you can. (laughs) <laughs> they say you can't make, oh, yeah. I've written songs I wouldn't show to my mama back then, you know. <laughs> I mean, you write bad ones sometimes, and you just try to try to always look for the, the best thing you can find and write a bad one. <laughs> if you write a bad one, you just throw it away because you'll learn something from everything, you know. Right. So when, so your question said, do you, do you think, no, you just, you pay attention to the knitting. Hmm. Well, you mentioned uh, Johnny McRae's song a while ago, um, I'd Love to Lay You Down, that Conway Twitty recorded. And that song is unique in that it modulates down at the end. You know, normally a song modulates up. Uh, you don't hear a lot of modulation at all in country music really anymore, but the 1980s was like the heyday of modulation in, in country music. Um, I, I think one of the probably the most pronounced examples is, is Conway Twitty and Loretta Lynn's recording of your song. I still believe in waltzes where Loretta, you know, takes the verse and then it modulates up a full step to the chorus, which Conway sings. He pulled me close and whispered now, darling, there's something I want you to know. 
still believe in waltzes and girls with old-fashioned ways. I still believe in love songs and the good and the good old days. I've always liked happy endings. And I, I'm curious because you know we've all heard that song so many times. Did you? write it that way to have that modulation, to have that lift uh, purposefully? Or was that something that they basically just had to do to accommodate both of those two singers' ranges? It was originally written uh, as a male or a female song exclusively. Huh. But it was a male song. I, actually, I don't think it was a female song. It was like the, the male sings, you know, tells a story, and, 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 I, and the male then says, I still believe in waltzes. Yeah. And it was, had to be tailored for a female and of course since they both sing in different you know different ranges i didn't have anything to do with that i actually put uh i think i sang, sang the demo and um it was there was no modulation there so it was particularly good when they did that because yeah it, it, it made it sound fresher yeah yeah it gave it a different type of movement you know speaking of the 80s that was a real transitional time in country music um you were having hits with these long-established traditional artists, you know, such as the Top Ten One Night Fever with Mel Tillis and the Top Five Shine On with George Jones, and then you're also finding success with, you know, people that were new uh, pop influence artists at the time, like Gary Morris, who took The Love She Found in Me to the Top Five. As a writer, how do you straddle the line between the old guard and the new guard when you're navigating these changing times? I mean, especially in Nashville, that, uh, that honors tradition so much. You know, you're trying to stay current, but you're also trying to, to stay true to what sort of Nashville knows and loves. You know, how, how do you manage that balance? Well, I'll tell you, that's a tough question, mainly because I love original country music, and I still do. And But for some reason, it might have been the influx of people in town that maybe did not understand three chords and the truth. Hmm. Um, and maybe they were from California or New York or something, and, and it started moving in that direction. And maybe You Decorated My Life did the same thing, because it was considered, uh, it, I want a Grammy for it, and it's not a country song. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to kid myself. It began to move because some for some reason, and not the diehard country fans, they hate what happened, you know, because it just moved into an area that they sang, I still... And, and I ask, get asked all the time by people who learn who I am, what the hell happened to country music? <laughs> I said, I can't tell you, buddy. Uh, you know, it has changed and everything. I, as a writer, though, however, I'll write anything. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, it didn't affect me as much as it did some of this, the, the, the regular true country writers and artists. Yeah. But I, I don't like it because it's mislabeled now. I hate to be, you know, I sound like an old poot or something like that, but <laughs> it's called country music. They should have called it something else because it ain't that. I mean, yeah, there's there's girls who, you know, who are really doing great stuff, you know. But uh, yeah, I have a hard time with uh, somebody who mislabels something. Hmm, it yeah. happens in politics all the time, but I won't go there. <laughs> 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 anyway, uh, the question is almost unanswerable, I think, in a yeah. way. Because I, I, I didn't think about it a lot, but I saw it happening, and I couldn't stop it. Hmm. You know, I mean, it was going to be what it's going to be, and the people that are in power, 
And, you know, and I'll, I will say a couple of things. First of all, as a writer, if you're successful, you've got about 15-year window. Mm-hmm. And can I write songs still? Oh, yeah. Not a problem. Does anybody care? No. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the point being is that when new people move into town, they want to establish their own new, they just want to so, and I remember when Harlan Howard, the great Harlan Howard, walked into Combine one day, and we were having coffee. And Harlan said, I can't understand it. Nobody wants to listen to my songs. Jeez. And I saw right then and there, I said, if he's going to say that, hmm. it's going to happen to all of us. Yeah. Yeah. And quite frankly, it did. About 15 years, and all of a sudden, you're persona non grata, or you don't exist, or you're dead, huh. all free. Yeah. So that's just the way it is. Before we move on from the kind of that urban cowboy era, um, I, I want to ask you about your song, Don't Call Him a Cowboy, which was a, a number one hit for Conway Twitty in 1985. And those lyrics, you know, are, are pretty barbed. You know, he's the Hollywood idea of the wild and woolly West and his French designer blue jeans and his custom tailored vest. But the toughest ride he's ever had was in his foreign car. So don't call him a cowboy. Until you've seen him ride Cause a Stetson hat and them fancy boots Don't tell you what's inside, no And if he ain't good in the saddle, Lord You won't be satisfied So don't call him a cowboy Until you've seen him ride It sounds like kind of a reaction against the whole urban cowboy thing, which had probably gotten a little out of hand by that point. Um, and even though urban, urban cowboy had, had, you know, it had brought you a good bit of success. Was there a sense of, of at that point, just feeling like, guys, it's, it's time to move on <laughs> to something else. Well, I, I think it's kind of a wacky little story because Johnny McRae came up with the idea and we wrote the song, but it wasn't right. And we rewrote the song. And it wasn't right. And then we said, you know, let's let's throw it to Debbie. That's Debbie's lyric. <laughs> <laughs> right. She just took it and just killed it. And so, uh, you know, it's it's one of those things. You know, you just <laughs> one door closes and <laughs> another one opens. I guess right. because we couldn't get it right. She got it right. Yeah, yeah. Well, that simple. And it was a reaction to urban cowboy. I mean, let's face it, stockbrokers with cowboy hats, give me a break. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> well, in 1987, you had a huge hit with Highway 101's Whiskey If You Were a Woman, and that finds the singer addressing whiskey and lamenting that it would be easier if it were another woman because she would have a better chance of beating it for the affections of her man. Somehow it's a very traditional country idea, but it's also super fresh and unique. And, you know, we haven't really talked about the source of inspiration for writing ideas, but I'd be curious to hear about your methods. I mean, 
Is it sort of like keeping your antenna up when you're watching TV or listening to you know, overhearing conversations? Do you read books? What what do you attribute, you know, the, the flow of new ideas when, when you're working on songs all the time? Well, you know, sometimes they just, on that particular, we took in a, an idea from Mary Frances. Uh, that was the idea, and Johnny and I wrote it uh, from her idea. Hmm. And... Where she got the idea, I don't know. She had, well, she had life experiences just like everybody else. But when, when it comes to me, uh, you get things out of the newspaper. Sometimes you uh, substitute a word or something. Like, I remember overheard conversation. I, I remember somebody telling a story about a, a girl. She, they were eavesdropping. And a girl, uh, was, the two girls were eating cheesecake or something like that. And, uh, and uh, and one girl said, you know, your husband's gone all the time. What do you do? And the girl said, I cry a lot. Hmm. Hmm. Somebody took that and said, yeah, and wrote a song. out. I don't know who it was. I don't remember, but I remember hearing that story. Sometimes they just come to you. Sometimes it comes to, sometimes the idea just comes to you, and it sounds like a nothing idea, but you know, I always say, write really complex ideas with real simple words, hmm. if you can. Yeah. And sometimes they think it comes from the collective consciousness, and uh, they're just the receivers. Um, sometimes simple word substitutions, home is where the hurt is, which is it's kind of smacks of gimmickry. It's all right if you write a fun song. There's nothing wrong with a fun song. I love Dakey Breaky Heart. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. It made people smile. Why yeah. not? Yeah. Yeah. Now, in terms of writing, you know, discipline, um, would you categorize yourself as as a guy who kind of um, has traditionally waited for that inspiration to strike? Or were you more of a, okay, every day I I set aside this amount of time and there's a, a certain discipline to it? Pretty much, Scott, you have to do it every day because you're not sure. I mean, if you have an idea, most writers bring in a little pad or a little notebook with some ideas that they that they read out, and if somebody says, yeah, I know what to do with that, uh, pretty much you bring something in, and sometimes you don't, sometimes you work on a song with somebody else that is not really going anywhere, but somebody come up with a line that is a better idea. Yeah. In other words, like, I think Woody Allen once said, 80% of success is just showing up. <laughs> and so I think that's pretty true. In other words, if nothing happens, too bad. You go get lunch and come back after lunch, maybe something good will happen. Maybe you yeah. heard something on them. In other words, it's, it's an organic process. It's really not something you can plan on happening. But if people are creative, they usually write a dirty song that will never get and they'll laugh a lot, which ain't bad either. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, right, right, right. Um, well, you mentioned your co-writers on Whiskey If You Were a Woman, Mary Francis and Johnny McRae, uh, with whom you also wrote Tonight the Heartaches on Me, best known in the top ten single version from the Dixie Chicks' hugely successful debut album, Wide Open Spaces. So
Well, basically, it was, again, Mary Frances. She, she was, the problem, Johnny and I had such a good, uh, a good rapport and relationship. She kind of wanted to be involved, but we decided not to do that. And, uh, and she brought the idea. And Johnny was great at saying, okay, this needs to do this, this, and this, so that when you get to this, it all seems like a natural, a natural progression. You know, in other words, you write your verses, and all of a sudden when you sing the first chorus line, it's, it's a natural progression of what's went before, but then you have to write it backwards. Hmm. You know, which is, you know, I always said, I always, I always look, I listen, if I write the chorus first, I like to write the chorus complete with the melody, with possible, and the verse melody, yeah. with not, nothing else. You, you got the chorus, so you know where you're going. you got to figure out and backtrack to see how you get there. And, you know, and so, you'll know, and you can't write too much in the first verse, because what do you do with the second verse is always scary. Hmm. Uh-oh, I broke too much. <laughs> I, have to, I have to back up and, and do it again, so I'll have something to say in the second verse. Like the second verse of decorated my life was very, very difficult to write. I mean, we spent weeks on it. I don't know how long, but, but a long time, I remember that. But it ended up really, I think, very poetic, but very good, so, you know. Yeah. And I, that's the way I like to do it. I like to write them backwards. Huh. That's interesting. You know, you, you mentioned something that I want to touch on. You you talked about sort of the 15-year the, the window, or the, you know, that sort of time when you really feel like th- that you are kind of on the wave, uh, and then, but but the fact that you know you don't stop being a songwriter or being a great songwriter just because, you know, it's, it seems like the momentum has shifted. And I'm I'm curious to know, you know, how how are you channeling that these days? If you don't feel like, you know, the the channels are are open or the, or the phone's not ringing in the way that that it did at one point, but I'm I'm sure you're still writing. So I'd like to know how that plays into your life now. Well, you know, uh, since I wasn't surprised by it. I have a very full life, but on the, on the, in songwriting, I can't stop. Hmm. I love it. I still take joy. And you know, actually, we just finished a demo of something that I think has a shot. <laughs> you never can tell when, when somebody's going to bring down their little, you know, little magic wand and hit something on the, in the demo or uh, the singer, and all of a sudden you got all this stardust on it. And we do have people who will pitch the song. Do I expect anything? No, no nothing. Mm-hmm. But being in the studio and hearing something come together, yeah. I, I'm just I'm just doing it for me. Yeah. And the point being is I, I don't I don't I'm not bitter at all because I mean everybody who who was in my class so to speak, you know the Mike Reeds and, and the William Holyfields and the Bob McDills, we are all history. And the point is, could we write a great song? Yeah. With no opportunity, you don't have a lot of impetus, but you do it when you get an idea. So, so to answer your question, I don't have a problem with it. Hmm. You know, it's just it's just what was supposed to be. I mean, what was not supposed to be, but what happened, and you deal with it. And it, it's not like oh, woe is me. You know, yeah. I was lucky. Yeah, and that's the way I look at it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, there's probably a lot of people out there writing uh, great songs who never got the chance to have a you decorated my life or looking for love or tonight the heartaches on me you know to to be able to to point to some of these things and in fact um we got 
one one more question for you, and we'll leave it here. But um, we uh, had a listener to this show reach out to us and say, "Hey, I'd really like to hear a, an interview." with Bob Morrison. If you guys could connect with him, he's always been a, a songwriting hero. So that was kind of the, the impetus for us saying, Oh yeah, let's, let's get, get Bob on the show is, is a listener, you know, specifically, you know, really wanting to, to hear your insights and, and your story. Um, so I'd be curious as kind of a, a parting thought, you know, as, as somebody who has known this life for a long time and, and found great success, what would you say, to uh, a young writer starting out about what's important to hold on to as they kind of navigate that creative life. In order to be successful, you have to be there. If you want to do this, it's unfortunate, but you cannot do it from a distance, even though I have worked with people from a distance who never came to town. I wrote, uh, I wrote songs that were successful. Like I still believe in waltzes came from a guy I've never met him. It was a great idea. The point being is that I read my mail and I responded to it. Now, that's unusual because people... But all I can say to a young writer is, if you really have to do this, you have to do it. Hmm. If you don't have to do it. In other words, it's not a a want-to-do thing. It's a have-to-do thing. Because it's going to be, you know, it's 99% rejection. If you can't deal with that, don't do it, you know. So, uh, but if you have the passion and it makes you joyful, then there ain't no problem with trying to do it because you can always get a job. And, and people have done it. Debbie Hub. There's no way anybody could say she did that. Yes, she did <laughs> because her heart was there. Yeah. If your heart's not there, don't do it. I don't care what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Great advice. Well, Bob, we really appreciate you uh, spending this time with us today to talk about your your songs and your career and your thoughts on songwriting. This has been uh, great for us. Uh, listen, I hope I hope you got some good stuff and uh, it, and, and people will enjoy it because you know uh, there are a lot of people out there who would love to write songs, and I think it's a great idea if you want to do it. So take care of yourself, Scott, and I appreciate it. And, and you too, Paul. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment to subscribe to Songcraft via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, we ask you to consider rating us and leaving us a good review. Word of mouth is important, and letting other potential listeners know what you think of the show helps us tremendously. And of course, nothing beats a personal recommendation. Perhaps take a moment right now to text or email one friend who you think would appreciate what we do and send them a link to our show, letting them know how much you enjoy it. As a reminder, you can sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com and find out how to help support us at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can follow us on social media by searching for Songcraft Conversations on Instagram and Songcraft Show on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.